2 Samuel chapter number 2. Excuse me, chapter number 1, 2 Samuel chapter 1. We'll read a few verses here. It would be hard to preach about the life of David without preaching about the life of Saul because their lives are so intertwined. And uh, we're going to look back a little bit. I realize there are several chapters that we're not going to dive into here in 1 Samuel, but I'm going to make mention of them. But I want to preach for a little while on David and Saul. Chapter 1 of the book of 2 Samuel. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Malachites, and David had abode two days in Ziklag. It came even to pass on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes rent and earth upon his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and did obeisance. And David said unto him, From whence comest thou? And he said unto him, Out of the camp of Israel am I escaped. And David said unto him, How went the matter? I pray thee, tell me. And he answered that the people are fled from the battle. Many of the people also are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. And David said unto the young man that told him, How knowest thou that Saul and Jonathan, his son, be dead? The young man that told him said, As I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and lo, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called unto me, and I answered, Here am I. And he said unto me, Who art thou? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said unto me again, Stand, I pray thee, upon me, and slay me, for anguish has come upon me, because my life is yet whole in me. So I stood upon him and slew him, because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. And I took the crown that was upon his head, and the bracelet that was on his arm, and have brought them hither unto my Lord." Then David took hold on his clothes and rent them, and likewise all the men that were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord, for the house of Israel, because they were fallen by the sword. And David said unto the young man that told him, Whence art thou? And he said, I am the son of a stranger and a Malachite. And David said unto him, How wast thou not afraid? to stretch forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. And David called one of the young men and said, Go near and fall upon him. And he smote him that he died. And David said unto him, Thy blood be upon thy head, for thy mouth is testified against thee, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son. Also he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow, Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher, The beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul, as though he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. 
Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? O Jonathan, thou hast slain in thine high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How art thou mighty fallen, and the weapons of war perished. I want us to think about this passage for a moment. And just before we do, I want to remind you of another passage. First Samuel 18 and verse 29, the Bible said, Saul was yet the more afraid of David. And Saul became David's enemy continually. He became David's enemy continually. If you go to chapter 18, here's what you'll find, 1 Samuel. Chapter 18 in 1 Samuel, you will find Saul envying David. The women have come back from the slaying of Goliath and they're singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And the Bible said Saul eyed him. Saul said, to me they've ascribed but thousands and to him they've ascribed ten thousands. What can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed him from that day forward. Chapter 18, you will find you will find Saul arranging a marriage between Michal and David, his daughter Michal. He doesn't arrange the marriage because he thinks that Michal's a fine young woman and David's a fine young man and they'd make a wonderful couple. He's arranging the marriage because he said, I'm hoping she will become a snare unto him. He's using his own daughter for that reason. Also in chapter 18, you will find him casting a javelin at David to smite him to the wall. Chapter 19, he's contemplating murder of David again. He's telling his, he's telling his servants, I want David dead. In chapter 20, he won't, he's telling Jonathan, I want David dead. And then he even tries to throw the javelin and to murder his own son, Jonathan, because Jonathan has become David's friend. Chapter 21, David flees to Gath for fear of Saul. Chapter 22, David hides his mother and father in Moab for fear of Saul. Chapter 22, Saul murders the priests because they assisted David. Chapter 23, Saul pursues David in the city of Keilah and in the woods. Chapter 24, Saul pursues David in the wilderness of En Gedi. Chapter 24 or 26, he pursues him in the wilderness of Ziph. In chapter 27, David flees to the Philistines for fear of Saul. Chapter after chapter, cir circumstance after circumstance, scene after scene, it is Saul persecuting David. Not just, not just trying to put him down, not just trying to offend him, trying to make an end of him, to kill him, filled with murderous intentions. 1 Samuel 13 and verse 14 Samuel says to Saul, but now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. 
So we see Saul and all of his intentions and all the wickedness and the ungodliness and all of it directed toward one man, David. And then Samuel has announced that David is the man after God's own heart. I've heard several different styles of preaching on that passage. One fellow said it meant that David was trying to win God's heart. I don't know about that. But I'm thinking about this. David is a man after God's own heart. The implication is that David's heart is somewhat like God's heart. And I'd like to submit to you this afternoon, and we'll look at it in a moment, that as wonderful as David, the things that he does in 1 Samuel, I don't think David ever looks more like God than he does in 2 Samuel chapter 1. I don't think if you wanted a better picture of the heart of God, I don't think you could find one than David's heart in 2 Samuel chapter 1. The things he says about Saul, the way he feels about Saul. Could I ask you something? How do you feel about the people that wrong you? What do you think about the people that hurt you and attack you? As far as I know, I don't know anybody that's ever tried to murder me or wanted to, as far as I know. As far as I know, I I never had to hide my family from somebody because I thought someone hated me so much they would would do uh, violence toward my family. As far as I know, I haven't. As far as I know, there's nobody that has hounded me scene after scene, day after day, week after week, month after month, trying to destroy me and put an end to my life. As far as I know, there's no one like that. And probably there's been no one like that in your life. And yet here we are. I wish old so-and-so would leave me alone. He sure is sorry. He sure is low down. He must not be right with God. There ain't a kind bone in his body. But that is not the way David talks about Saul. I want to just use three words for the next few moments. I can't preach very long because I said to Joshua, my least, I won't preach long. He said, okay. Three words. How David reminds me of my Lord. How David reminds me of David's son, my Lord Jesus. The first word is the word waiting. Waiting. You know what David has learned in the midst of all of this trial and all of this difficulty? He has learned to wait. He has learned that things that sometimes that God promises to us do not come the day he promises them. That sometimes we must learn to wait on the Lord. The Bible said, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I'm sure I've mentioned this, but have you ever thought about that that verse is backward? That is not the way I would have written it. 
I would have said, if you wait on the Lord, you can walk, and after a while you can run, and then finally you can work up to flying. But God put it exactly opposite. You were flying first, and then you were running, and then now you're walking. It's as though walking, the consistent walk, is really the epitome of the Christian life. It's not the high-flying times, and it's not even the running busy times. Those are, though those are a part of our Christian life. But it's that steady walk, that just being the same, just waiting on God. And so here is David. He has learned to wait. Saul could not wait. The man after the flesh cannot wait. Do you remember one time he was supposed to wait for Samuel to come? But he got impatient, and he went ahead and intruded into the priestly office and did what was, it was only right for Samuel to do. Saul did it. You know what his problem was? He could not wait. And you know what he said? He said, I forced myself. That's what he said to Saul. He couldn't wait. He didn't know how to wait. He didn't know how to wait on the Lord. The writer of Proverbs said, Say not thou, I will recompense evil, but wait on the Lord, and he shall save thee. You know, the Bible said in Hebrews 5, 8 about our Lord, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, that verse is is just a little bit too deep for my uh, puny brain to understand it all, but whatever it means, it surely means this, that the things that Jesus went through those things he had to wait he had to be patient for the day when God his father would exalt him he knew how to wait you and I have trouble waiting you have trouble with it I do I want things to be right I want to be right right now I want it straightened out right now. I want the answer right now. I mean, Lord, you tell me you know what I need even before I ask, so I wish you'd just go ahead and do it, but it's not always God's timing, and we must learn to wait. David has learned to wait. You know what he's doing here in 2 Samuel 1? He's waiting. He's waiting. I don't read where he's hoping that Saul will die. I don't read anything about that. I just find him waiting. He's just waiting patiently to find out what has happened. He's waiting. He's a picture of our Lord. I thought about our Lord Jesus. He waited in Joseph's home, born into that that, uh, home, that country home, that home of the carpenter. He waited. He's the Son of God. God manifests in the flesh, but he waited. The Bible talked about him growing in stature. He waited in line to be baptized. I, I always... One of my favorite pictures in my mind and my heart of Jesus is at the baptism of John. You remember what the Bible said? They came to John confessing their sins. And so here they are lined up, and they're coming up, and one fellow walks up, and he said, I'm a whoremonger. I've been immoral, and I'm sorry, and I want to be right with God. I'm sorry, John. And John said, all right, come here. I'll baptize you. And maybe a woman walked up, and she said, I've been uh, I've been a gossip or a rumor monger, and I'm I'm sorry, and uh, somebody else walks up, said, I've been, I've been uh, dishonest, I've been a cheater. They're all in line. They're just waiting their turn to tell what they've done wrong, to tell how sorry they are, to, as it were, bring forth fruit, meat for repentance, and John goes to baptize them, everyone. But there's somebody in that line that's unusual. After a little while, I don't know how many there were that day that came, but all of a sudden, the next one in line doesn't have any sin to confess. He'd never done anything wrong. There's no sin in 
him, neither was guile found in his mouth because he's the Lord Jesus Christ. And when John sees him, John says, behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. You know what he's saying? Hey, every one of you that just got baptized and worried about that sin, right there's the answer to it. He's the answer to your sin. He even waited in line for us. He waited in the wilderness to be tempted. 40 days, 40 nights. He waited on the shore while the disciples battled the storm in their little ship until it was just the right time, until they was done in. And there's no hope for him other than Christ. And then you know what he did? He came walking on the water. He waited before going to Bethany to raise Lazarus even though they had sent to him and said, he whom thou lovest is sick. Don't you like the way that says that? He didn't say, Lord, he who loves you is sick. That wasn't the point. He said, he whom thou lovest is sick. And that was the point. And then he waited on the cross till the work was finished. He waited in the grave. Tell his father, raised him up. He waited to be exalted by his father. He's waiting right now. Tell the day his father says, go get your bride. He knows how to wait. And David knew how to wait. Do you know how to wait? Waiting. He reminds me of the Savior in his waiting. And then he reminds me of the Savior in his watching. Here's the second word, his watching. David apparently is watching while he's waiting. He's watching to get news to find out what's going on. And on the third day, here's the way one writer put it. On the third day, temptation arrives. Here comes a stranger with the crown in his hand. David need only take it. That's what the fellow said. He said, I've come. He said, I, I brought the crown for you, David. All David has to do is take it. David said, who are you? Who are you? And how'd you get that crown anyway? And weren't you afraid to put your hands on God's anointed? And you know what David will not do? He won't take the crown from this character. He won't take the crown from this scoundrel. He will have nothing to do with this liar, and he will not take the crown from the hand of the enemy. He's been watching. He's been discerning. He takes a good look at this fellow coming with Saul's crown, and I can see it going over in his mind. Now, how did he get this, and why does he have it, and what right does he have to give it to me, and what right do I have to take it from somebody like him? It's not where it's coming from. He knows how to watch. You know, the devil likes to slip things up on us, slip things in on us. So David is a watcher. You say, well, does that remind you of Christ? It does. The Bible tells me that when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, three temptations, and one of them went like this. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain. 
and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, all these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Now I want you to think about David. If David had taken the crown from this Amalekite, isn't that something? This was an Amalekite. Saul was supposed to wipe them out a long time ago. But leftover sin always comes back to get you. So this Amalekite has the, has the crown. And so he said, I brought the crown for you. Saul is dead. I helped kill him myself. I think he probably was expecting a reward and a thank you. I helped get him out of the way. Here's the crown. If David had taken that crown, the next time somebody saw him, they would have said, where'd you get that crown? Where'd that crown come from? Well, I got it from an Amalekite. And you know what they would have said? That's an illegitimate crown. You didn't get that from the right place. They didn't come to the right place. So now Jesus is in the wilderness, and he's been fasting 40 days, and the devil has already tempted him on two accounts. Uh, He's told him, he said, turn the the stones to bread, and he's told him, uh, throw yourself off the pinnacle and prove that you are. And now he says to him, I'll tell you what, I'll give you all these kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow down and worship me. Now you think about Jesus. You think about David. Could you think about David looking at that crown saying, now think of all the good I could do with that crown. Think of all the good I could do if I had that crown on my head. Think how I could change things around here if I was the king right now. Can you just see that going through his mind? And here is Jesus. Think about what Jesus could do with all the kingdoms of the world. But you know what? It was coming from the wrong hand. It was coming from the wrong power. It was coming from somebody who didn't have the authority to give it to him. It was a compromise. He said, I won't take that from you. Get thee hence." Satan, he's watching. David reminds me of our Lord and his watching. You know what would have happened if Jesus had taken those, taken those kingdoms from the devil? It's a temptation, and it's the temptation we face, listen to me carefully, to lower our standard in order to increase our reach. to endanger our integrity in order to enlarge our influence. It would bypass the cross. It would be taking the least line of resistance. It would be sovereignty without suffering. It would be a crown without a cross. It would be outside the will of God. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you lower your standard, whatever reach you have is illegitimate. If you lose your integrity, whatever... Whatever influence you think you have is illegitimate. Our Lord refused the glory of this world at Satan's hand. Yet in Gethsemane, he accepted the shame of the cross at the Father's hand. He knew what was important. I want you to think about this. I wrote this down. The minister, the minister needs to watch lest he change the message so as not to alienate the hearer. Water it down. Leave a little of this out. Because if I water it down and leave a little of this out, I'll have more folks who will come to hear me. But what good does it do them to come and hear you if you don't tell them the whole truth. 
Make the message more palatable by wrapping it in the trappings of this world. The message of the cross is an offense. It's not meant to be palatable. Do you think it's palatable to have people come and tell them, you'll have to die? Die to self. Because that's the message of the cross. It's a message of death and then life. It's not your best life now. That's not what it is. There is a, there is, there is a, a temptation to the Christian worker weighing the good against the bad. There's a temptation to the Christian politician working under the table deal to achieve a greater end. There's a temptation for the editor include a lie to somehow advance a positive agenda. It's a, there's, a, there's a temptation for the author. But I was reading this book one time. Fellow, I like to read. I think I have every book that he's ever written. I like, to, I like his style. I like the way he writes. He, pre, he re, preaches a lot on Bible characters. And I like that. So I'm reading along in his book, uh, his commentary on Revelation, and he makes this statement, said, better to have a little leaven and love. No, 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 no. It's never better to have a little leaven. The Bible never speaks well of leaven. And if you let a little, if you let a, this is hard to say, I'm getting tongue-tied. If you let a little leaven in, your problem is you don't love the people you're preaching to. Because if you love the people you're preaching to, you wouldn't stick that leaven in there. You wouldn't allow that lie in there. You wouldn't pollute the message with that leaven. You'd say, leave this out. This ain't right. It's a temptation of the businessman. Get a position by any means and then use it to noble ends. The labor, abandon convictions to keep the job. The family man, compromise standards to keep peace in the family. The student cheat for a better grade to have a better future. You see, to choose prosperity over purity is to finally lose sight of what purity is. To choose a reward over right is finally to be unable to discern what is right. To change our stand with the winds of change is to end up with no stand except change. Just blown with the wind. We'd better be watchful, hadn't we? And you know what David's being? He reminds me of Jesus because he's, he's not just going to take that crown from anybody for any reason, under any circumstance. He wants it the right way. Let's serve the right way. Let's serve God. We're living in a day. We're living in an age of where we're just going to slide over a little bit. We're just going to change this. I remember, I remember years ago a preacher preaching, and he said this. He said, when you're constantly changing your position, pretty soon change becomes your position. You have no position except change. You go any way the wind blows, anywhere the road leads. Doesn't matter. I'm glad David was watching, and I'm glad our Lord watched. So there's the word waiting. There's the word watching. And here's our final word. It's the word weeping. Look in verse 17, 2 Samuel 1. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. You're familiar with the book of Lamentations? What is this about? This is David grieving over the death of Saul. There's no rejoicing here. There's no jumping up and down. 
There's no, the wicked witch of the West is dead. There's none of that. There's no happiness. There's no joy. David don't say, finally, finally I'm done with him. David begins to lament over the man who has spent the past, I think it's, I get David and Jonathan mixed, Joseph mixed up, so I won't even attempt the years. But over these past years, the man who has made David's life miserable. Anybody made your life miserable? Or tried to? And when he's moved off the scene, here is David's response. Man, I'm glad he's gone. Boy, I was tired of messing with him. Man, no, here's David's response. He, he lamented. Look what he said. The beauty of Israel. Now, who's he talking about? Saul. The beauty of Israel is slain upon the high places. Who's he talking about? Saul. How are the mighty fallen? Who's he talking about? Saul. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ascalon. Let the, I could just, for some reason, ringing in my ears, I could just hear somebody saying on the telephone to somebody else, hey, 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 remember that one that gave me all that trouble? Remember him? He's gone. David said, don't tell anybody about this. I don't want the enemy to rejoice. Ye mountains of Geboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain. You know, this is easy preaching and hard living right here. Neither let there be rain upon you nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul as though he had not been anointed with oil. On and on he goes. He calls them lovely and pleasant in their life. Not just Jonathan. We might expect that. But he doesn't call him just Jonathan. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their life. That's David's, that's David's commentary on the life of Saul. You say, preacher, that's too much for me. Me too. Too high for me. Me too. But I'll tell you what thrills my soul. The man after God's own heart. He's a reflection of the heart of God. God said, as I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You say, well, preacher Saul made David's life miserable. Well, I want you to remember, dear friend, your life before you knew God. I want you to think about what your life was like. I want you to think about what your life did to God and how it affected God. And even after you got saved, how short you've come. And yet, here's the man after God's own heart. He's given us a view in the heart of God, and he's weeping. He's weeping over those that were his enemies. And I'll tell you, God did more than just weep over those that were his enemies. He sent his only begotten son to die on the cross and give his life for those that hated him. He is weeping. The writer of Proverbs said, Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth. Let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth. Remember Jesus coming over the hill and he's on the side of the hill and he's looking at Jerusalem. And the Bible said as he looked at that city, when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. And he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stonest and killest the prophets, 
How often would I have gathered thee under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chickens and you would not? Think about what he said. He said, I sent you prophets. I sent those prophets to you. I sent them all along, and here's what you did. You stoned them, and you killed them. But he's not standing on the side of that hill saying, ha, whoopee, you're about to get what you deserve. You're about about to reap what you sowed. It's about time you pay for all the blood you shed. No, he's standing on the side of the hill weeping, saying, oh, Jerusalem, if you'd have just let me, I'd have gathered you up under my wings like a mother had. Hallelujah, what a Savior that would love like that. He hung on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It wasn't, Father, make them pay. Father, give them what they deserve. Father, Father, make it right. He was, Father, forgive them. That's the heart of the Savior. That was the heart of David. Say, preacher, this is too much for me. I know it is. It's too much for me, but, but wait a minute. David was a man like you and I are men. So apparently it ought not be too much for us. If David could, if David could look at the man who tried to murder him, the man he had to hide his parents from for their safety, the man he had to flee from out in the wilderness, the man who on two occasions tried to stick him to the wall with a javelin, if David could look at that man and say how lovely and pleasant was he in his life. God help us to be like David. Because if we'll be like David, we'll look like Jesus. And that's what we're here for. To be conformed to the image of Christ. Let me say this and I'll be done. I wrote this down. You know what David does? He commends all of Saul's strengths and brings up none of his weaknesses. And then he does his best to cover all of Saul's sin. He said, don't tell it anywhere. I'll tell you what Jesus did on the cross. He did more than just cover my sin. He washed it away in the blood that he shed on Calvary. David was a man after God's own heart. I don't know about you, but I'd like to be a man after God's own heart. I remember Brother Lee Davis. It's in heaven now. I remember I was at his place one time. And I, I can't quite remember in my mind, which this happens to me a lot lately, exactly what was going on. If I was there, I probably should have been preaching, but it seems like he said this while he was preaching. He said, last Easter Sunday, my wife put on a lily white dress on our little girl. 
But she said she made a, he said she made a mistake. She put it on too early. And our little girl got outside in her lily white dress. And about a half hour before church, she came in and she was covered with dirt. Her hair was all disheveled. He said, my wife took our little girl and took off that used-to-be lily white dress, washed her up, fixed her hair, dressed her up. He said, I brought her to church. And he said, not a one of you, not a one of you ever knew how dirty she'd been. We came in here today all cleaned up and dressed up in the righteousness of Christ. And only God knows how dirty we were before he saved us and washed us and cleaned us up. What a Savior. What a Savior. I want you to bow your heads a moment, if you will. I want to be a man after God's own heart. 